Hello, I'm glad that you're here for our next lesson in our series, Living the Future Now. Uh, we've been going through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And in this lesson, I want us to look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It is a fascinating discussion that we're going to look at today. You'll remember that in First Thessalonians, Paul answers the questions from a pastoral perspective about the rapture. He talks about... Uh, the people of God being caught up together to meet with the Lord in the air. And, and we examined that. Second Thessalonians is a letter that came several months later, uh, a follow-up, if you will. And Paul writes it to address some specific misunderstandings about the second coming, about last days. Chapter 1 that we looked at last week uh, was really his... Uh, commendation of, of this church and, and all of the things that, that Paul was particularly proud of related to, to their uh, life and, and well-being as a church. But in chapter 2, he really gets to the heart of the matter that he means to cover in this letter. And so we're going we're gonna to cover that in, in this session. He's going to talk to us about the visible events that will take place as indicators of the return of Jesus Christ, or what he calls the day of the Lord. One of the interesting things as I, as a young man, when I first began to study eschatology, the doctrine of last things, one of the things that really bothered me was the idea that the Antichrist, that there would be a day arrived that the Antichrist would would be able to have global control, that the whole world would would respond to a single leader and that there would be uh, a government structure that 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 ruled over the entire earth i i couldn't as a young man a generation ago i couldn't imagine that as a legitimate possibility and so one of my one of my uh, reluctances as i tried to understand the doctrine of last days was just how the whole world could be under the control of a, of a single person. Uh, I think if I had any of those reservations left after all these decades of ministry, um, the last of those reservations are gone now because if there's anything the last two months have proven to me, it is that the world is ripe for somebody to rise up and exert an influence that brings the whole world on board. I've never seen anything like the response to this COVID-19 pandemic and the the short amount of time, literally days between the start of this uh, health crisis and and the entire world, virtually every nation on the planet having some similar response of shutting down their economies and isolating their people from each other and from other nations. Uh, I've been, I've been astonished to watch the rapidity with which that has unfolded and, and how nations that didn't even have any reported cases, uh, closed down their economies and began to self-isolate because of the, uh, the mindset that was sweeping the planet. I found what I was looking for just a couple of weeks ago in an article from the the Guardian, which is a, a, a British newspaper, 
where they talk about an interview that was given by Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown is a former prime minister of the United Kingdom. He's, uh, he's retired now. He was uh, involved in uh, the 2008 financial crisis. But in an interview, Gordon Brown, just this, uh, just a few weeks ago, he suggested, and I was waiting to see this, and this is where it showed up for the first time. He suggested that a global crisis like the coronavirus pandemic really requires a global response. And what he proposed, he called it a temporary structure, but we all know that government, uh, things that are temporary have a way of taking on permanency. It's the nature of a bureaucracy. It's the nature of government in general. Gordon Brown's proposal was in order to deal with a global crisis, both medical and economic, what would be required is a global authority. And he proposes a small group of men who have authority above national authority so that they can make decisions on what the global response to a crisis should be. Now, I'm not typically caught up in newspaper headlines, and I don't get my last day's theology out of, uh, out of the, the, the modern-day media. But I tell you, it was striking to me to see somebody with a straight face suggest that national sovereignty needs to be set aside and that it is time. This crisis is so dramatic that it's time for a single authoritative body to be above all of the nations and make decisions for the entire earth. Wow. We are now entering into eerily end times feeling kinds of stuff. We've heard conspiracy theorists talk about the proposals of a new world order and a global government. But here we have, <coughs> we have uh, a respected politician proposing in a public forum for the first time that we put into place a small group of men who would tell nations what to do and who would have the authority to run the entire earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see anything that could go wrong with that idea. What this tells me, though, is when we come to this passage about the Antichrist and Paul begins to describe somebody that is adored and takes over uh, global leadership, for the first time in my life, I can really see and imagine just how rapidly something like that could actually take place. So, let's go on an adventure. Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There are 17 verses. We're going to see if we can... Um, See if we can get through all of these. Uh, if not, we'll just stop and, and pick it up. Uh, verse 1 begins with a heading in my Bible called the man of lawlessness. Uh, Paul doesn't use the, the phrase antichrist. That's a title that really shows up in John's writings. Paul uses a different phrase, um, actually uses a couple of phrases, man of lawlessness or son of destruction. Or in one other place, he calls him the lawless one. 
So understand that he's talking about the same thing that, that John is talking about when he uses the term Antichrist. The difference is um, John is specifically speaking about this person in contrast to Jesus, uh, where Paul is really describing a political slash religious leader uh, who is opposed to Christ. We'll see that. But um, but he's writing to a Gentile audience where John was writing to a Jewish audience, and so uh, he just uses a, a little bit different language. But let's let's see what we can can find here. I've entitled this lesson "A Counterfeit Christ" because that is in effect what the Antichrist is. He is one who will present himself not only as a Messiah but as God Himself. You'll see that Paul uh, <coughs> gives us those. Uh, those instructions. Now, the the first issue, I'm, uh, in the first couple of verses, I've called this the issue identified. And and I, I want to give you the background because Paul, writing this second Thessalonian letter so quickly on the heels of the first, it's because he got word, apparently, that there was a real theological uh, misunderstanding. Now, we'll see where that comes from because he mentions uh, another letter in, in his writings in this chapter. But he wants to correct this because uh, end times theology is not something that we just sort of uh, slough off as unimportant. It is vital for us to understand what the Bible means for us to understand because the hope of the return of Christ, the promise of the judgment of evil, those things are critical for us to be able to live faithfully in the world in which we've been placed. But in the same way that we saw in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talked about the rapture, but he did not satisfy our curiosity by telling us uh, a lot of uh, detail. It was a pastoral care moment. He was giving us the information that we need to encourage one another in difficult days, but he didn't make it his mission to answer all the questions that that we naturally have about such issues. When we get to this chapter and he talks about the Antichrist, what you're going to see is he gives us some tremendous detail, but what he does not give us is he doesn't give us a timetable. He doesn't even give us a chronology of events, and he certainly doesn't give us a duration of how long it will take for all of this to unfold. Because again, he's speaking as a pastor, and he's giving us deep and significant theology, but he's not doing it as a a matter of satisfying curiosity. There are some things that... Paul may have known by direct revelation that he didn't have permission to share with us. So he gives us what a pastor needs to give to his people to help them have a proper understanding of what's true so that they can have the motivation to live the life that they've been called to live. But he doesn't answer all of our questions or satisfy our curiosity on this matter. So first two verses of chapter 2. Uh, He's going to identify the issue. Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. All right, here's the issue. He says the Philippians had some misunderstanding that had really caused a stir within the church family, and the question was, did we miss the return of Jesus Christ? 
You remember in the last letter, they were concerned that those that had died in their eyes prematurely, would they be somehow... Uh, would they forfeit the opportunity to be a part of the second coming of Christ and the rapture of believers? They lived with such a sense of the imminence, <coughs> excuse me, such a sense of the imminence of the coming of Christ that they thought that it would be any day. And so they were concerned about those that had died. Paul gives them that information in the first letter. But now they had apparently received a message, maybe a letter, by someone alleging that uh, that the return of Christ had already taken place. Now, here's the thing. It would have been easy for them in the teachings that they had, they understood that in the last days that the church would face real difficulties. We're going we're gonna to look at the phrase that, that is sometimes translated the great apostasy. Sometimes it's called the great rebellion. Paul is going to talk about that in, in just a couple of verses. But they would have already had from his previous teaching, and by the way, that's why he doesn't answer a lot of questions here. He's not teaching them something new. He's reminding them of things he's already taught them. So he doesn't give them the detail in this letter that we would love to have. He assumes that they know what he's talking about. And he starts with their understanding that that there was going to be trouble for the church in the last days. Well, think about the Thessalonian church. They were facing increasing persecution because of their faith from the, the government of the Roman Empire. It would have been easy for them if they viewed the persecution that they were beginning to experience, if they assumed that that persecution, that those um, those oppressive measures taken against the church, if they assumed that those events in their generation were the beginnings of what would be understood as the Great Tribulation, it would naturally increase their sense of, of urgency that, that the, the return of Jesus was right around the corner. And now here, with already a heightened level of intense expectation, here they've gotten some word from somewhere that, that the return of Christ has already happened. And they were a little bit panicked. They were unsettled. Let's look at the language of these first two verses. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Paul's using two phrases from different perspectives to describe the same event. He says, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the perspective of heaven. And he says, and our being gathered to him, that is the rapture side. That's the earth perspective. He's talking about the same event, not two separate events. He says, now concerning the coming, the heavenly perspective of Jesus coming to us and the earth perspective of us rising to come to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled. That that word in Greek, easily upset, it's a word that means unsettled. It's related to the idea of, uh, of a building that has experienced uh, an earthquake. And the earthquake has done damage to the foundation, so now the building itself is a little wobbly. It's a little unsteady. That's the language that he's using here. He says, I want you to have enough grasp of what you need to know about the, the last days, about the coming of Christ, about our being gathered into his presence. You need to have a hold on this because without a proper understanding of the last days, 
it makes the structure of your faith a little wobbly. I had a systematic theology professor in seminary who used to say, all theology is eschatology and all eschatology is theology. All he meant by that was, it's impossible to have a theological understanding of the faith without an underlying grasp of the doctrine of last things. It's not something that we can just, I I see people just sort of lop it off and say, well, I don't understand any of that, so I I just, I don't put any time or energy into that. Last days are intimately interwoven into everything that we understand because think about it. What we know about God and his sovereignty, the fact that human history is coming to an intentional conclusion, the, the work of Christ is designed to bring all of creation back under the dominion uh, of the one who created it. I mean, every the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine uh, of, of man, the doctrine of sin, everything about our theology is motivated and, and undergirded by this guarantee of what happens in the last days. Paul says, I don't want you to be unsettled because I know your faith will be shaken if you don't get this right. And so he says, I don't want you to be easily upset or troubled. I don't want, I don't want you to be unsettled or shaken by this, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Now the word prophecy, that means somebody speaking as though it's direct revelation. You had teachers in, in the first century that would travel from place to place and they would deliver a word of knowledge. We have that in our generation as well. It's kind of a, uh, in some areas it's a real Pentecostal. Um, characteristic, this idea of a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge that is really a direct revelation. Listen, you shy away from that because there is nothing that anybody can say to you that is contradictory or outside the boundaries of the word of God that you can trust. Paul said, I don't care if they've given you a direct revelation that they claim has come from God. I don't care if they've given you a message. That that message, that word, means a reasoned application of uh, of an argument. In other words, he's saying, I don't care if somebody sits down with you and takes Scripture and tries to build an argument and, and they come to a conclusion that's different from what Paul has instructed them. He said, don't listen to direct revelation that contradicts what you've heard from me. Don't listen to a reasoned debate-like argument that comes to a different conclusion. And don't accept a letter that's supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Apparently what happened is somebody sent a letter that claimed to be from Paul saying that the, that the, the, the day of the Lord had already taken place. How did you know a letter was authentic in the ancient world? Well, there were several ways. First of all was it was received by a trusted carrier. There's a reason that Paul sent his letters either by Timothy or one of the other traveling companions from his ministry team that the church, the specific church that he was delivering a letter to, they would have known this was actually a a member of Paul's mission team. So the carrier himself, oftentimes Paul sent a letter to a church in the hands of one of that church's members. They would bring something to Paul and he'd send a return letter by the member. The carrier himself was a guarantee of the authenticity of a letter. Secondly, there was the signature. 
Uh, many letters in the ancient world were written by a, a scribe or an amanuensis. It's a Greek word that means secretary. Somebody else would actually take the letter. Most of Paul's letters apparently were dictated, but he went out of his way to sign the letter at the bottom with his own signature. It was a mark of authenticity, the same way we sign documents today with our signature. That makes them legally binding. The third thing, besides the carrier and the, and the signature... Paul says the content of the letter cannot disagree with the character and the teaching of the author of that letter. So don't accept a letter that comes to you from me that teaches you something different than you've already heard me teach you. He says, I don't want you to be shaken by any of these sources. They're not to be trusted. The the issue is, did we miss the return of Jesus Christ? And he wants them to understand that they know the truth about that answer. And so not to be swayed by any other answer that tends to, that tries to pull them in another direction. Let's look at the, the error corrected, okay? Uh, beginning in verse three. This is the, the bulk of what he's gonna, gonna say to us. In verse three, he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. All right, let's, let's, let's look at this a couple of verses at a time. He's going to correct the error, first of all, by talking about uh, what I've called a devilish deception. He says there are, uh, really he outlines two visible events and one invisible event, but the invisible event will be, uh, will be understood by the visible events that happen. We'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. But he says, you, you think that you've missed the coming of Christ, but here are at least two visible events that you should look for that will prepare you for the fact that this is actually uh, on its way. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now that word apostasy is sometimes translated rebellion. It's a word that means a falling away from the faith. Now, there was a strong... Um, element within Jewish theology that Paul would have been uh, deeply familiar with, uh, Old Testament eschatology had about it a strong sense that within Judaism, there would be a remnant of those who remained faithful, but that there would be a time when the Jewish nation as a whole would fall away from their faith. Now, we can flash forward 2,000 years from Paul writing uh, this letter to the Thessalonian church and realize that there are very few Jewish, uh, faithful Jewish believers in the world today. Um, of the millions of Jews that are on the planet, many of them are what we call secular Jews or they are Jewish by, uh, by racial makeup. They're Jewish by culture, uh, but they have fallen away from 
uh, a true understanding of, of the faith. Now, Paul's going to give that topic a more complete discussion in the ninth, 10th, and 11th chapters of the book of Romans. That's specifically where he deals with the falling away uh, of the chosen people and the fact that God will use the expansion of the church among Gentiles to become a, a, a motivating factor that draws uh, the Jews back to their Messiah. That's, that's Romans. That's another lesson. But what he says here is not just the Jewish apostasy, but I think Paul now expands it because he not only has that, that, that strand of Jewish eschatology in his background, but he is teaching that this great apostasy, this rebellion, uh, now includes the church, which is primarily made up of Gentiles, so that in the last days, he says, there will be a visible event that takes place that involves the falling away from the faith, from the practice of the faith, by many who have been involved. In other words, the church will hit a speed bump where there will be those who have been attenders, who have been involved, uh, who will fall away, who will walk away from the faith. Now, this is not the loss of salvation. This is um, the separation of the wheat and the tares. This is those who are a part of the church, who are maybe even active in the church, but who, like like the, the apostles had to say about Judas when they explained Judas, he went out from us. Because at the core, he was not one of us. There will be in the life of the church in the last days uh, a, a sequence of events that will produce a falling away, a separation from those who are casually connected to the church, who have a church habit maybe, but they're not truly a part of the kingdom of God by the transforming presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. He says that's going to be a visible event, this falling away. But the second visible event is what he calls the man of lawlessness being revealed, the revelation of this man who he says is the man doomed to destruction. This is the Antichrist, and as he's going to talk in verse 4, he's describing a man that that makes his appearance on the scene and is loved and adored globally. We'll see who loves him and adores him in just a minute. But he makes his appearance, uh, his appearance, and from Paul's perspective, his number one characteristic will be an extraordinary level of arrogance. An arrogance that says he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. You see, the idea is not that he's just opposed to religion, but he will assume a position of authority and with some supernatural validation to his claim to power, he will assert that he is not just a human leader, but that he is God himself, and he will demand absolute loyalty and worship for himself. He will proclaim that he himself is God. Now, there have been a lot of um, uh, strange episodes of that, what John tells calls uh, uh, many antichrists. There are times throughout human history 
uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, sacrificed a pig in in the the interim period between the Old and New Testament. That history of uh, of Judaism uh, it it caused a rebellion that came to be called the Maccabean Revolt. If you've ever seen uh, the books that are sometimes included in a Catholic Bible that are between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, it will include the books of Maccabees, and it tells that that story of the of the Jewish rebellion. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian dictator who sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Jewish temple in order to desecrate the temple and then uh, demanded worship. Uh, there were Roman emperors periodically that would have themselves declared, Caligula, for example, had himself declared divine and, and, and demanded worship. But in each of those instances, while they have bits and pieces that, that match this description, while they seem to be indications of, of the kind of thing that Satan intends to do, none of them fulfill uh, this particular description of this man who has global influence and who doesn't just demand reverence. He claims unequivocally to be God. Now, this... Uh, this devilish deception is followed by uh, his justification, his his claim to dominion. Look at verse 5. It says, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this. Now, Paul just inserts that because, and that's how we know, he's not giving them a brand new teaching. He's reminding them of things that he'd already taught them. And so, as you would expect, this is intended as a review for the Thessalonian church. So, that's why Paul doesn't give us all the things we'd like to know. He's talking to them about things that they know. He says, don't you remember we talked about this? Verse 6, and you know what currently restrains him. So that he will be revealed in his time. All right, let me read a couple of verses, then we'll come back to that. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, uh, so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. Okay. Let's unpack these verses. He starts by saying um, that this is, he wants us to understand that this man is motivated by a satanic desire. It appears that he is not a supernatural being. He is a man, but that he has the full resources of, uh, of our spiritual enemy behind him. And he presents himself this way. In verse, uh, and I told you there are two events that are visible. One is, Paul said, you haven't missed the coming of, of, of Jesus until you see the great rebellion, the great apostasy, the great falling away from the faith. As the church contracts in the last days, because those who are not a part of the true church uh, lose their motivation, are pulled away maybe by... Uh, the general attitude of society that, that it's no longer respectable to be in church 
or for whatever reason. It doesn't tell us that these two events are separate or that there's any chronological order. They very much could be uh, related to uh, almost two sides of the same coin. As this man who claims to be God is finally revealed, and we'll see what's holding that back, as he's finally revealed, the draw to him, the attractiveness of what he offers, that may be the very thing that causes people to turn away from the church. If they're not truly followers of Jesus Christ, it's real easy to understand how in that moment they would say, well, why do I need to go to church every Sunday and worship an invisible Jesus when here's God in the flesh right here. This is the Messiah, the the Christ. Now, we know antichrist, counterfeit Christ. But for those who are who are easily deceived, look at what he'll do. It says in verse uh verse 6, you know what currently restrains him. I'll come back to that cuz that's in different discussion. So that he will be revealed in his time. Something is holding back the unfolding of this event. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That is, the circumstances that will produce this global ruler and his claim to God, to divinity, that process is already in motion, but it's been restrained so that it can't come to complete fruition yet. He says, when the one now restraining will do so until he's out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. All right, we're going to come back to that. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders. Now, this is how this person is going to uh, attempt to validate his claim to be God. Paul, uh, this is translated false miracles. These are miraculous actions. And I want you to understand, Paul means false miracles in the sense that they're not true miracles coming from God. But he doesn't mean to imply that they are, uh, that they are, uh, parlor tricks. They're not illusions. These are actual miracles that will take place that will seem to validate this man's claim to divinity. The reality, though, Paul tells us that that these are miracles that come from an evil source. He will draw his ability to have supernatural proof of his claims from the evil one. So false miracles really could be translated better... um, Real miracles that are not from truth. He said he'll have false miracles. He'll also have signs. Signs is a word that describes anything done that points to something else. So there will be signs. In other words, there will be events that take place that will seem to suggest that this man is exactly who he claims to be. They will be uh, confirming events to his claims of divinity. He says also signs and wonders. Wonders is a word that means anything that any action or any event that inspires awe. In other words, he's going to say this guy is going to come and claim to be God. And he's going to back up that claim by actual miracles, by signs that seem to validate his position, and by doing things that will make people's jaws drop. 
Now you might think, well, well, if he has all that kind of supernatural confirmation, how do we know for sure that he's not from God? Because Paul's teaching us that. Now let me, let me tell you exactly how, how, how I can answer that question. He says, he will come with every, verse 10, with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. In other words, there are only two options here. In the last days, there will be lovers of the truth and there will be lovers of the lie, of the deception. The coming of this global hero who will seem to have all of the answers to all of the crises, to all of the struggles, to all of the problems of the planet, this savior of humanity, he will come with events with things that he does that seem to validate his claim to be God. The church will see a falling away because those who do not love truth and so are saved by it will be so drawn to the appealing nature of this deception that they will make their way to his support. It says that only those who know truth... You see, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and the spirit of the living God resides in you, even with the most impressive miracles that he can muster, there will be an unshakable testimony in our souls that says this is not the Christ. This is not the way he said he would come. There's no shout of an archangel. There's no sky splitting open. There's no entourage of angelic hosts following. This is not what we were taught to expect regarding Jesus. But this is precisely what we were taught to expect regarding the substitute, the counterfeit. It says that because they, uh, there's nobody lost. There's nobody that belongs to Christ who will be lost to this deception. But the Bible, but Paul tells us that, that those who have failed to acknowledge the truth, those who don't have a love for the truth, and so by that have a relationship with Christ, they will not only be easy pickings for this, uh, for this uh, evil one, but he says God will actually give them this illusion to allow them to follow after their soul-level inclinations. God is not setting people up like a, a, a speed trap and trying to catch them and, and punish them. He's simply allowing events to unfold so that the heart of every man, woman, and child is revealed. If you're a lover of truth... You'll know what's true. If you have accepted the lie, the Antichrist will simply be the opportunity for that acceptance of the lie to come to full public blossom in your life. 
Well, why hasn't the Antichrist already come? Well, let's go back to those two phrases that really are, are the crux of the, of, of the interpretation struggle in this, in these verses. It says in verse six, and you know what currently restrains him. That is, restrains the coming of this man that, that Paul is describing. So that he will be revealed in his time. Now, in Greek, that phrase is, um, is neutral. It's, it's, it's not male nor female. It's, it, it implies a force. Some sort of force. And he tells them because he's already taught this to them. And this is specifically where we wish Paul would, would go back to the, to the beginning of this conversation and give us all the detail. He says, you know what currently restrains him. You know what force it is that is keeping this man from being revealed at the present time. What could that be? Well, hold on to this. He uses the, the language of an impersonal force at this point. But in the very next verse, he transforms that into a masculine reference that, that plays out in this translation. Uh, verse 7, the one uh, for the mystery of lawlessness. Oh, verse 6, you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. What currently restrains him? That's the impersonal force. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining him will do so until he is out of the way. That is, uh, and then the lawless one will be revealed. He switches from a, an impersonal force to a masculine pronoun it's translated here as one, which in English is is neither male nor female. But in Greek, it's a masculine pronoun. So it's as if he's saying, you know the force that's keeping this man from being revealed until the proper time that he who is preventing this from coming is pulled back and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. There's lots of interpretations for this, but let me just cut to the chase because this is how this is how I unfold these verses. The impersonal force that Paul is talking about, I take that to mean the presence of the power of God, of a sovereign God who is controlling events in such a way that evil never has uh, the ability to move beyond the leash that God has evil on. You say, well, now, why does God allow evil? Well, in a mysterious way, the fact of the matter is, if, if we're going to make God sovereign over over everything, God has to be sovereign over evil as well. The book of Job finds uh, the the enemy coming to God and, and having a conversation, and, and Job is put on display, and, and God gives permission for some things to happen to Job. Now, what Job never seems to understand until late in the book uh, is that, uh, that that his response to the trials of life had a cosmic consequence. The whole universe was watching what was uh, what was unfolding. So, in the specifics of of the difficulty of Job's life, there was a much bigger picture going on, unfolding of God uh, playing out the story of redemption that that Job really wasn't uh, privy to in, in the story. Here we have. We have the power of God sovereignly restraining evil until such a time that in the timing of God's plan, it is time for evil to be released to have its full effect. Why would that happen? Because 
in the judgment day, when every man stands before God, there will not be any coin flip decisions. There won't be anybody that comes before God and, and will say, well, well, is he or is he not? Is he a follower? Is he not a follower? Is he a believer? Is he not a believer? There's nobody that's going to be on that line. What will happen in the last days is that the events of human history will unfold in such a way that there will only be two options and they will be so clearly distinct from each other that to find yourself in one camp or another is to make it obvious to everyone in all of human history, in all of creation history, which side you stand on. There will be no close calls in the day of judgment. And as evil in the last days is given its full release to do its worst, it will draw those who are in the camp of evil and it will be the final uh, uh, suffering for those who will never suffer again in all of eternity. It's a tough idea. But it is a vindication of the justice of God in the life of every single person. Nobody will get to the judgment day and say, well, I can make a case for myself. No, you can't. Either the blood of Jesus will cover you and make that case for you, or you will have accepted the illusion that was offered to you and you will have pursued evil and it will be unmistakable where you stand. Now, if this impersonal force is the power of God in human history, then my interpretation is when Paul shifts to uh, the masculine reference, when he is removed, I think he refers to the Holy Spirit. God's power in the world today is demonstrated by the activity of His Spirit, not only in and through the lives of His own children, but as a general course of God's sovereignty over the earth. He is restraining evil. You say, well, the world is pretty evil. Yes, it is, but evil has not come to its full-blown fruition. It is restrained by the power of God as represented by the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit of God, it's unfortunate that the the King James Bible so many centuries ago translated the Spirit of God as the Holy Ghost because it has created in the minds of some of our people a misunderstanding that that the Holy Spirit is really uh, a force, an energy that emanates from God. That's not the case. The Holy Spirit is an individual. He is one of the persons that make up the Trinity. God is three in one. You say, well, I don't understand the Trinity. Well, join the club because none of us understand the Trinity. It's because our minds can't fully grasp this uh, this reality of who God is. We only know uh, what we're told and we can only accept it uh, without fully understanding it. But, but what we're told is that God is three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Spirit is not a force, is not an impersonal object. You should never refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, is always a he. And when Paul shifts from this this restraining power 
the power of God that holds back the, the revelation of the evil one. And then he says, and that power will stay in place until he is removed, until the Holy Spirit is pulled back. Now, is that, uh, is that the moment that the church is raptured? Is that when the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the faithful, uh, that they are taken away and as they are t- because how can the Holy Spirit be removed from, f- from the earth if the people of God in in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, if we're still here. I think this is a persuasive case that Paul is talking about that moment when uh, when the church is gone. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't be here to see uh, the emergence of this Antichrist. It doesn't mean that we won't be here to, to experience the falling away of those in the church. It just means that before all of that story is fully played out in all of its uh, unholiness, at some point, uh, we will be gone. Now, when he, when Paul is describing this, he, he's te- he tells the church, don't worry about missing the return of Jesus because these, this one invisible thing has to happen. That is the removal of the restrainer. But we'll know that that invisible thing has happened when these two visible things happen. The revelation of this man who claims to be God, who validates that claim with jaw-dropping miraculous signs and wonders, and when the church begins to see the great apostasy, the great rebellion, the great falling away. Those are tangible, visible, measurable events necessary before the coming of Christ. You say, well, Pastor, I thought I thought Jesus could come any day. Okay. Let me let me speak to that. I I've 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 heard people preach that you know Jesus could come today before you get home from church. Jesus could come uh tonight before you can wake up tomorrow morning. Um I do think that the return of Jesus is soon. I do think that uh when events unfold they will happen quickly. But let me just ask you, did you ever imagine in the middle of February of 2020 that what we've seen in March and April would unfold the way that it's unfolded? I mean, in the time from the middle of February to now as we approach the middle of May, we have seen the entire globe respond to events in ways that just three months ago I couldn't have fathomed in my wildest dreams. What am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that in the timing of God, these events that Paul describes in these verses in Second Thessalonians probably do not take years. I think the emergence, the spectacular emergence of a ruler who would gain the support, the loyalty of national rulers across the globe. This ruler who will validate his claim to be God and his rejection of any other object of worship, the, 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 the billions of people that would follow him, that could happen in a matter of days. 
no more than weeks. So what does that mean? It means that I don't think Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. But I tell you, folks, it wouldn't surprise me if Jesus came back this summer. I have no problem seeing Jesus come back in the fall. I don't think 2021 is out of, out of reach because I'm now convinced that everything Paul describes can happen with such astounding rapidity that those who don't know the truth, just like this coronavirus thing, they will be swept up in the global groupthink that this is the way to go. That's why Paul says, you have to get this right. He doesn't give us the timing. He doesn't give us the duration. He doesn't give us the chronology. He doesn't answer any of our questions of curiosity. But what he does say is, it's important for you to know what's true about the last days. The coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the counterfeit Christ. It's important to be a lover of truth because in that day, the lovers of truth, those that have been saved, will be separated out from the lovers of the lie, the ones who pursue this validation of evil. There's only two camps. There's no in-between ground. There's no demilitarized zone. It's one or the other. There will be those who are figuratively on top of the world for a time until they spend eternity separated from God in punishment in hell. There will be those who are oppressed and, 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 and grieved over what they see unfolding. But it's only for a time before they make their way to the marriage supper of the Lamb and live in the presence of the throne of grace forever and ever. Amen. Paul's going to come back with the closing verses and and talk about the practical way that this plays out in the life of a church. But I'm going to stop right here because it just seems like this is a lot to chew on. We'll pick up those verses and come back to them. But but I want you to understand, Paul's not telling us scary bedtime stories. And he's not telling us something that we need to run from in fear. He is telling us, without equivocation, what to look for, how to know what's true, what's real, and what's right, versus what's false what's fake, and what's evil. And if we are lovers of the truth, if we have had the Word of God implanted in us so that we recognize the difference between the Christ and the Antichrist, the Messiah, the King, the counterfeit ruler, when we understand and recognize Everything will come together and we will know 
that the time, I believe the time now is short, but as we see those events, we will know the time is really short. We do not have the day. We do not have the hour. Jesus said even he didn't know that. That was in the Father's hands. But Paul gives us, by revelation, some things to look for so that as that day comes like a thief in the night, we will not be caught off guard because we will know the unfolding of what we've been told. If you if you watched a movie for the very first time, you'd never seen the movie before, but somebody had already given you a detailed explanation of the climax of the plot, you could watch that movie, even though it was the first time you watched it, you could watch it with complete confidence about what comes next because you've already been told. We will have front row seats for these events, but we will know them like the back of our hands because we are lovers of the truth. And by that, we have been saved. We'll finish Second Thessalonians over the next couple of weeks. Evergreen, go be the church. In Jesus' name, amen.